Live from Vienna and Stockholm, this is the Arbitration Station. What are you doing? <laughs> I'm spicing it up here, Tom. I'm in the UN. I have a reputation to think about. Yeah, just keep your headphones in and I'll yeah. I'll lead this train to success. Great. Uh, welcome. Thanks for calling in on your busy schedule. Ah, it's not that busy actually. I'm I'm observing more than anything else, so this is just a good way to to be involved myself actively. What if you like had this inclination, like, oh, I really want to speak up and say something? Would they be like, shut up, observer, get back in your I, role? No, I actually did. I made an intervention, and so did most of the other uh, observing non-states as well, actually. Some of them uh, when it was more or less called for, and some on their own motion. Oh, wow. Okay, but we'll get into this as one of our topics, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. What else for do you sure. have for us today? Um, well... This will be evident as we as we move along in this episode that I, I I cannot do any juicy gossip things that you promised last week that I would do this week because there are some restrictions to what you can talk about with respect to what's going on in the Uncentral Working Group. So uh, I will instead talk to Michele Podesta, who's a senior associate with Levi Kaufmann Kohler and also I think a senior researcher with uh, SIDS in Geneva, and he has written a report together with Gabriel Kaufmann-Kohler that is part of the uh, basis for what's being discussed in Unsetral. So I'll talk to him about that report, which looks at uh, com the composition of a future tribunal. Wow, that or, is or, a or a body. That is a great person to interview then. Yeah, it is. And he, he is uh, very much a star of his generation, which is sad because it's also our generation and he is so much better than you and I. <laughs> it's like watching In the Olympics way. and you're like, Michael Phelps and I are the same age. <laughs> Damn it. I, I felt like this. I, you know, Hannes Lenk that we interviewed uh, for the EU Law segment in episode three or four, him and I, we were both at this uh, Unseen Actors conference in The Hague. And then... We in in Gothenburg, where we both live, we are very big fish in the very very small pond of investment law because the pond is just the two of us. Right. <laughs> we, we're very big players in the Gothenburg community of investment lawyers, but in the Hague, we were like, shit, this is not going to work out because then you just meet these people who you know they they speak all the six UN languages and are clerking for an ICJ judge and they're born in like late 1990s. So it was it was nice. We were seeing him on the flight back. But it's nice to go back home to our own little community of two. <laughs> um, okay, so we have the interview, and then you have you're gonna give us a little debrief, whatever you can tell us on the meetings. Yeah, I'll start with that actually, uh, okay. and I'll be probably uh, talking mostly of the sense of the room, you know, how the how the onstral work is being conducted in practice to give our listeners sort of an insight. Cool. And then for the happy fun time topic, we're going to talk about mediation. Who even cares? <laughs> um, <laughs> it's uh, it's something that I've like thought about a, a little bit of while ever since I've been studying, like why mediation just doesn't come up and why mediation is included in so many um, conventions or so many institutional rules yet uh, or treaties. And yet it's just completely ignored and almost like 
not frowned upon, but, you know, like, just never addressed. Um, so just talking about, it'll be more of a not talking about mediation, but more like, why do arbitrators hate it so much? Why do arbitration lawyers hate it so much? That's a great topic and um, an amusing one, as is fit for the happy fun time segment. Exactly. So from Stockholm and from Vienna, let's get the arbitration station going. So we, of course, over-promised, as is our custom, uh, last week when we said I was going to broadcast live from the UN. I, I guess we realized that wouldn't happen. But um, one of the first things that happened this week, actually, was that the all the uh, observers, or the NGOs, at least, were taken into a room and we, we got an introduction by the Uncentral Secretariat on the transparency policy, oh. which, which I have to say isn't super clear uh, even now, towards the end of the week, following uh, actually a formal intervention during the discussions in the room from a state where they asked the secretary to clarify because the state in question or the representative didn't themselves understand the transparency policy. And they got a clarification and I at least, it, it didn't do much for me in terms of clarifying <laughs> what, what are the rules. So, but I can say this, which makes me a little bit more comfortable talking about the Uncentral Reform Work, that this will, our podcast will not air this week. It will air next week when the discussions are over. And it seems, it seemed that it was a consensus that when the discussions are over, you're free to talk to anyone you would like to. And the Secretariat actually also said that even when the discussions are going on, you can, of course, talk to your colleagues, is what they said. Okay, that's, and I, guess, I, mean, I mean, such imprecise language. It is, exactly. So, I, But I guess the point is, and that sort of brings me into the substance of what we're talking about, for the first time ever, there's political interest in the Uncetral work. Which is no why one... they don't want the discussions being broadcasted, because it would just influence. Exactly. exactly. I mean, that makes sense. But the, the question posed by the state delegation was based on previous work, when they said, we've always operated under the assumption that everything here is open, because it's it's an open forum. And it was also actually posed when transparency was being discussed, transparency in terms of future ISDS. So it was just, you know, it might be a bit ironic to, because all the states basically made interventions saying that transparency is very important and a crucial interest for them. So it would be ironic if those statements were being made in a closed setting. Yeah. But so it's it's a little bit unclear, but I think the policy is don't don't broadcast during the week. And uh, especially when the report of what's going on has been published, which will happen sometime in the week that we publish this thing, it's also going to be either audio or video or both. It's going to be published on the Uncentral website. Probably video? Only. Like we're going to see you all on video? I don't know. There was also different uh, different messages that uh, let's let's follow up on this yeah and when we see probably for the the next episode it, we will know i think the previous ones have been audio but i heard rumors it, it would be video as well because everything's recorded on video i hope you look nice joel yeah i'm wearing suit and tie okay good that's it <laughs> still haven't shaved that's good all right so to be on the safe side, I won't talk about the substantive discussions, which in any event are at such an early stage that not much of a revolutionary new info has happened. 
it's very clear that this reform work is a marathon that we've just started. So it's going to go on for quite some time, as I said last week, too. And at this stage, they are basically the states are airing grievances and trying to figure out a very broad agenda as to how they should move forward rather than addressing, you know, remedies or reforms that are more concrete in nature. But I had, well, first of all, I had forgotten how delicate the task of the secretariat is. And it, it became very clear because, as will probably be well known and discussed in the future, something unusual happened in the beginning of the UNCTAD meeting, which made me proud because I had identified this as an interesting issue in the generic uh, intro to UNCTAD we talked about last week. That is the election of the chairperson. Right. Yeah, you did mention that. Yeah, because I thought that would be interesting to see who gets elected. And typically, it's just a matter of uh, form that states pretty quickly form a consensus. And then a chairperson is informally elected because no state objects. This time, though, it took a day and a half to get the chairperson in place. Dang. So, So the first day and a half was basically spent... Well, I guess there were a lot of consultation breaks, you know, as I said, uh, it's in it's in the coffee breaks that decisions are being made. And it's because of the room's size and, you know, the the, the amount of delegates, you, you often have to uh, just break and leave the opportunity for member states to, to confer among themselves. And what happened was we had a vote, or they had a vote, the member states had a vote for the first time in uncentral history since deciding to move on central secretariat from New York to Vienna sometime in the mid 70s that's the only time they've ever used the voting procedure in on central was basically you know the the first thing they did and since then all the working groups have always operated without voting so this was sort of an, a historical thing that that of course some states really wanted to avoid because it would signal you know bad things if they had to vote for the first right. time on the on this like first issue but <laughs> what's, i mean what's going to happen then do you i mean why was it so contentious like without getting into the details of who was nominated and whatever like why did it take a day and a half to come to an agreement like what were the considerations oh uh, that's a good question we don't really know because there's well first of all because most of the discussions were not in the room but rather between interested member states uh, in between so as observers we don't really know but from the interventions, it's clear that there are no formal criteria for who is the chairperson. Uh, so now they started talking about those criteria. Like, should should it be, for example, a government official, which some states felt strongly it should, some other states felt strongly it shouldn't. Okay. So there was no consensus on like the basis of discussion. And then, of course, the states from which the the candidates came from also played in so like the, do their states have strong positions one way or the other and would that signal something but uh, i have to say it's very interesting to see diplomats working because they're so skilled and they're even in this relatively contentious part of the discussions super collegial and right it's it's nothing personal at all and eventually the candidate who ended up not being chairperson took the floor and just immediately, in a, in a super classy act, <laughs> made sure that uh, our delegation, you know, we throw our weight behind the newly elected chairperson, uh, and let's, you know, move on to the substantive discussions. No hard feelings, which which right. uh, we hate everyone... your country, but no hard feelings. Um... <laughs> but it was, that that made for for uh, that classy thing made for a good discussion then going on. I think. 
I'm picturing like the House of Lords or House of Commons or the House of Representatives, like just people throwing up pieces of paper and like running across the aisle to talk to other delegates. But it's maybe it wasn't that as exciting. That. Yeah, it's the exact opposite. It's more like an arbitration hearing. You know, it's okay. so it's so quiet, and e even when you you sort of get the sense between the lines that these are strongly held views, it's still formulated in such a such a polite way. You know, it's always states may wish to consider blah blah blah. The the it's it's our belief that the previous uh, intervention does not entirely reflect the whole truth. Blah, blah, blah. It's it's really all very very uh, noble and uh, polite how exciting it is i love it and that that's also you can tell as i said in the in the uh, first episode on this topic they send different delegations as well and you can really tell that some states have their permanent uh, permanent representatives at like their embassies in vienna speaking so generalist diplomats and some other states they send specialists with, with uh, practice and many states send both. And that also, I think, sort of informs the way they communicate. And I mean, it's also the UN. So you have six languages with simultaneous interpretation all the time. Oh, wow. So it's clear that many delegates are, of course, multilingual and also make interventions in different languages. So several representations, same, same person, depending on the context, would speak different languages. There was no like language of the proceeding? Uh, no, no, no. Everything is in six official languages, which also means that all the reports and all the documentation coming out has to be translated in, into six different languages. I mean, English is, of course, like the lowest common denominator, the only language that almost everyone in the room understands, at least at a like proficient level, I think. Right. But it's still back and forth. All six languages were actually used uh, pretty extensively. And it's also like if one intervention is made in French, then some other delegation might respond in French, even though that second delegation typically do does not speak French. Wow. So there, there were several delegations making interventions in like three different languages, which is, you know, it's old school UN. I love that stuff. Definitely. It's so cool. And then we have all the observers, of course. We are there to assist. So we basically are not allowed to vote. And I think that's sort of a custom that you don't intervene unless it's obvious that your view was either invited or because you have something to add that has not been added before. So we had, I mean, the SEC sent me. Uh, but I think the Secretary General of the SEC will probably keep going to the, the meetings in the future. ICSID, PCA, and ICC all sent their Secretaries General. And they were all there for like the whole week. And that are. was just in case they were like, how does the SEC do this? And you'd be like, well, this is how we do this. Yeah, exactly. Which is actually more or less what happened. Because one, one state made an intervention asking the Secretariat sort of rhetorically, you know, have, have all these commercial institutions, and they named a few, been invited to, to share their views. And that's when I made... So after after that, I made my intervention on behalf of the SEC, just you know, raising my hand, saying we're in the room. And oh, you didn't like have any substantive. I did that as well because once I had the floor, there were a few things that I that what I felt that like data and experience from the SEC could assist, because some states I made interventions, you know, as if there was a vacuum, you know, 
talking in abstract about something where I we had specific experience. So I could add that data and that experience just to inform the discussion, which is also what the other institutions made from time to time as well, just sharing. Did your uh, palms get sweaty? Did your knees get weak? No, actually not. I was telling my wife over the phone that this is, that I felt good. <laughs> Speaking you felt public. natural. I felt like a baby being birthed into water. It was just where I was supposed to be. <laughs> You're mocking me. I was trying to <laughs> no. make a sincere moment here, but that, it backfired. No, it wasn't that that uh, much of a nervous thing, actually, because of, as I said, the collegial air in the room. Generally, it's so professional. So it's not. it's not like I'm uh you know making my opening statement in a in a contentious dispute it's just right it's Not just like a classroom but it's a very big classroom with a diverse group of people right so it, all in all it's a, it's a pretty strange room of people because it's not just the states the member states and the observing states and then the arbitration institutions you also have a lot of different observers that have been invited sort of murky uh, in uh, who gets invited and why but uh, there's a geographical spread and many of these like NGOs or different, you know, uh, the, the Moot Alumni Association was there and different like legal societies were there. And many of them also send people who obviously have something else as their day job, lawyers who also are there representing some sort of, of organization. So we have a lot of uh, different lawyers from the arbitration or the investment law community so all in all it's a pretty strange room because you have so many states and so many experts it's it's different it's very unique as you would say right <laughs> uh okay so that after a day and a half then you launched into substantive discussions yeah well at this very early stage as i said it's mostly you know talking about what we are about to talk about and i think getting a feel for the room and it was important for the chairperson who was ultimately elected, I think, to get the process going more than anything else. There was no need to get any concrete results out of this week, which is about to end soon. The, the point was more to like, you know, take take uh, leadership a little bit. But as I said, and this I really I felt a little bit badly when I realized this because I, I hadn't been fully... Uh, correct in my characterization last week, the secretariat and the chairperson, I think I said that they guide and and lead the discussions, but they are not really formally allowed to do anything. Uh, it's the states that are driving this, and it's such a delicate task, as I said, to chair this thing. But the, the, the chair can only basically give the floor, and that's what the chair does, but still, we, we all need to get something out of this, so they also have to uh, drive it forward some way, one way or the other. Right. Did do you think but, the chair did well? Absolutely. Because we'll have to I, find out who the chair is in the report, right? That's not something you feel comfortable at this stage. Yeah, it, it's it's it will be a matter of public knowledge when we broadcast this. But just to be on the safe side, so that the the SEC won't get any <laughs> criticism right. for, for sending me. Let's let's stay away from it just for now. Right. Okay. But this made me think so much about the interpretation. And the different, it was also in the Unseen Actor Conference in The Hague, they talked, I think there was a whole panel on interpreters in international adjudication. And there was a lady who was an anthropologist, maybe? Well, she was an actual scientist in any way, or a social scientist, not a lawyer, who had studied 
the ICC, not the Chamber of Commerce in Paris, but the criminal court in The Hague, and the role of interpreters there, which was mind-blowingly interesting. Yeah. Because here at the UN, it's crazy, of course, that you have six languages and every intervention has to be interpreted in, into the other five simultaneously it's with crazy. all that that entails. It is. I, it's, I'm, just, I'm just amazed by the skills. But at the ICC, uh, they have no standing official languages because uh, every case they have is an ad hoc case, basically. So, you know, they want to investigate person X in country Y. So they can't have people on staff that speak the languages that are relevant for country Y. So they need for every case they initiate, they need to find people from scratch. And so far as we know, most of the ICC cases have been against African defendants. Right. So they need to find interpreters in all these obscure, I think you said seven, 27 African languages so far they've been using, like four or five out of which barely have written traditions because they're so small and specific. So they need to have all, and they can't even you know, make a public tender for experts because as soon as they do that, they, they, they that sets off a red flag in terms of what are they about to investigate. So if it's a very specific language and the ICC says, we need interpreters in this language, that's basically saying we are looking at person X now. Right. Which would, would highlight this to person X who might then If you want to see a very good example of this in practice, uh, all these languages conflicting, did you see the movie that came out recently of the Bosnian-Croat war criminal? No. Who takes poison? Oh, yeah, yeah. What? You mean the movie or the... No, 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 no. This is like live. Yeah, um, yeah, exactly. I thought you said the movie. No, said, and it's so funny because they're movie. like, they're yelling in like five different languages at each other. And even some of the advocates become like confused by which language they're supposed to like address the tribunal in and address uh, address the panel. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And they're like, he took poison. And then they scream something in like Serbian or Bosnian. And then they like scream it in French. And then people are yelling at each other and everyone has their headsets on. And even the guy taking the poison has his headset on as if, as if he needs the interpretation of like warning him of his death. Yeah, yeah, that's, I mean, that Shakespearean arc that ended with him taking his own life. That's, it's uh, surreal. So surreal. That was pretty crazy. It cannot beat reality. I was going to say that at Uncentral, there were also a lot of these people that we talked about when you talked about, uh, I think, opening statements about people who, who listen to the interpretation as they speak. Right. Which is crazy. There was one example uh, when one observer talked about mediation, which is our happy fun time topic for today, as it happens, and in French. And I was listening with one ear to the French just to test my own French skills and then listening with the other to the interpretation into English. And the interpreter kept saying media instead of mediation, mm -hmm. which got more and more confusing for him, the interpreter, I think, the, the further along it went because it, it's, it didn't make sense. Like she was contrasting mediation with arbitration and, and other things in the intervention. And it was like media coverage is different from arbitration and then <laughs> towards the end i mean someone probably alerted the speaker or she's ended by saying something that's okay just to clarify i have been talking about mediation which is different from arbitration other than nothing. <laughs> we're talking about a whole nother topic here uh, yeah, exactly but that you you don't catch that unless you're listening yourself as you speak no, exactly i mean sometimes when you in arbitrations you have you know the real-time uh, transcription as well 
So you're able to even, you know, and that's in the language of the proceeding. So you're able to follow it there, what the interpreter is saying. So you don't have to kind of go through all those hoops. You can just kind of look what's going to be on the record. Um, but even then, yeah. if you have like an arbitration where two languages are the official languages of the proceedings, it's, you really need to have your eye on that. I wonder if these interpreters at the UN moonlight in like arbitrations as well, or if it's such oh, a good definitely. gig, you think? Are yeah, they like yeah. freelancers or are they employed by the UN and work exclusively there? Because I would imagine the UN has an interest in locking them down, given how few people are able to talk about international law in Arabic and French and English. Yeah, I don't know. I, I think that they're freelance because they'll just have their own companies. At least the ones we've used have been, they'll have a list, of course. Yeah. Um, okay, so when's the next working group meeting? It's April in New York, and maybe we will follow up then either by sending an arbitration station observer to the room or just by talking to someone to, to see how, how is it going. Because to, to wrap it up, it's clear that this will go on for a long time, but that it will also be one way or the other really reforming the field in which many of us are working on an everyday basis. So it's whereas we tend to be you and I on the factory floor, this is really where they make the strategic decisions that are going to have a huge impact on all of us. So we have to follow up one right. way or the other. But there's nothing to report about their, the general feeling of having a court of arbitration or no i my personal interpretation is that it the, we will never get something either a permanent first instance court or an appeals body with significant buy-in from all states right. i think it's i get the sense not based on interventions but rather talking to people that we it's basically too hard to get everyone to agree to something that's going to work so but something will come out of it because it's very clear that, that most uh, delegations are interested in doing something and the only thing everyone seems to agree on is that you know a few things could be worked out uh, with respect to how the system and the bilateral treaties we have now actually look so something is going to happen but my guess is that we're going to get some sort of body and then it's going to be sort of an opt-in thing that those who are interested will opt into it right interesting and then i assume that you took your own medicine and networked the hell out of that room afterwards yeah, this very unique room, as I said, is, is a, it's a good network. And it's clear that many people are there, that many of the observers are there primarily for the networking, also because of their interest in the subject matter, of course. But it's rare to be able to talk to state delegations as well. It's a different dynamic than arbitration conferences. Meg Kinnear from the ICSID, for example, the Secretary General of ICSID, at any arbitration conference when I've ever seen her, she's been like center of attention with all these arbitration lawyers hanging around, you know, giving her their business cards and right. and talking to her. She's such a power player. Here, although she made several interventions and she's obviously such a, a knowledgeable person, she's not that like, that that much of a target for for people at at the networking things because the states have they go back you know to get instruction from their capitals or to talk to other states and and focus on the subject matter they don't have the same uh, you know network 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 reflex that arbitration practitioners tend to have definitely no it's a different context absolutely and i love it <laughs> <laughs> And in one of these networking breaks, I actually also managed to uh, sneak away with Michele Potesta and, and we, we took a breakout room that I think was intended for state delegations and, and <laughs> shut the door and, Perfect. and recorded an interview about or on the report that he has co-authored. And that is the next segment coming up.
Excited to hear it. Let's move on. All right. Michele, thank you so much for, for joining us. Thank you, Joel, for the opportunity. It's Michele, not Michelle. No? Right. <laughs> it's already been referred to here in at the Uncertral meetings in, in different ways. I guess it's a common problem. Um, you have co-authored not just one, but two reports on behalf of, or at least as ordered by, the Uncertral Commission, right? That's right, yeah. What is the context? How does it work when they commission these reports from you? Well, um, we started discussing with them in 2015, uh, when uh, UNCITROL was exploring um, possible future work uh, opportunities uh, for its working groups. And um, this was when the Mauritius Convention on Transparency work had been completed. And so they came up with the idea of exploring whether it was feasible to use the same model of the Mauritius Convention for broader reforms. So that was a bit the, the context in which our collaboration started. And they asked the, the, the UNSTOL Secretariat asked the Geneva Center for International Dispute Settlement, the SIDS, to explore the uh, possibility to use the Mauritius Convention for broader ISDS reform. And so uh, what uh, had in, in initially appeared to be a rather uh, discreet and uh, a narrow topic, once we started uh, looking at the issue, we, we, we figured out it was actually a very complex and, uh, and, uh, and difficult topic to address. And, and so this is a bit the context in which our first report came into existence. It's, it, for, for a scholar, it's a dream scenario, really, to get sort of a wide mandate to, broadly speaking, look at various aspects of how to reform a very interesting legal field. Uh, you're absolutely right. It, it, it's really a, a dream situation, I have to say. The, the, the Secretariat also leaves us a, a lot of freedom, and uh, essentially we, have, we, we enjoy full academic freedom in what you write. And, uh, and so it's, it's, it's really an intellectually challenging uh, task that we, that we are privileged to do. So without pronouncing myself too much on, on the direction of the work of the UNCITRAL Working Group, it seems to be, it's fair to say that the report you just mentioned, looking at the potential usability of the Mauritius Convention, sort of set the stage for the discussion that is now ongoing, although it's still in a relatively uh, open-ended scenario. But then you also co-wrote with uh, Professor Gabriel Kaufmann-Kohler the second report, which is just, it, it was released just a few weeks ago. Right, and on 15th of November. Which is at least, uh, ostensibly in terms of scope, a little bit more narrow. Absolutely. You're looking at the, uh, what, what, how would you put it? The well, we, we look at the way, uh, ways uh, in which adjudicatory bodies, international courts and tribunals essentially, uh, are composed, and so how judges or members of those bodies are, are selected uh, with a view to understanding what can be drawn from the existing examples if states were mm, to decide to establish adjudicatory bodies in the field of investment disputes and to be more, more clear, a multilateral investment court or an appeal mechanism uh, for, for investor state arbitral awards. So we look at essentially at and what is out there in terms of uh, international courts and tribunals, standing courts, but also arbitral institutions to the extent that those examples can be useful um, for, for, the future, for the future work, if, if it ever comes to that. 
Yeah, and I guess that that if is uh, as of now a relatively big if, but it, it is it is a very big if. And of course, let me let me just say very clearly, we take no position on whether um, it is appropriate to 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 go in that direction. We we try to provide an objective assessment on what are the legal issues and the challenges that states would face if. They decide to to go down that road, and and it seems we are still at the very early stages of a discussion, and uh, I think many states still need to thoroughly discuss internally and with with, with other states uh, whether they wish to reform ISDI, the existing ISDS system in such a um, far-reaching way. Uh, perhaps we will never come to that. But if it comes to that, um, there's there's clear legal issues and legal challenges that they will address. Mm. And so the the report essentially tries to map the options that state have and the legal issues that they would inevitably have to face if they want to uh, essentially create a, a multilateral investment court or an appeal body. To the extent it is even feasible to condense a 117 pages long report, what are some of these issues when it comes to, to structuring such a, a body, which I guess, judging from the report, you're looking at both some sort of permanent first instance court scenario and or also an appellate body that may or may not be end up being connected to the to the first instance right so we look at several you're, you're right we look at several constellation uh, look at several scenarios we, we look uh, first at this at this distinction that you've made so either um, a, a multilateral investment court that would be the, let's say the most radical reform option because essentially uh, in the idea of those who are putting forward this this proposal it would entirely replace uh, the existing ad hoc uh, system of investor state arbitration and by ad hoc I don't mean non-institutional arbitration I just mean the existing investor state arbitration whether it's administered by an institution or yeah, purely ad hoc that each tribunal is separate from the other with exactly no structure. It's, it's constituted uh, for the dispute and then dissolved after the dispute this is a, the, the, the meaning they ascribe to to ad hoc and so the multilateral investment court would be one option a second option would be to uh, keep the existing investor state arbitration and essentially supplement it with an, an ad hoc, with, with sorry, with a standing appellate body, uh, which would review investor state awards um, with a, according to a certain type of review. In particular, by by reviewing the correctness of the um, of the of the issues, whether factual or legal, something which obviously now is absent because, as we know, there's no there's no appeal mechanism. So these are a bit the the two main options that we've looked at. But then within each of these options. Options, there's actually several sub-options, and essentially, we you, you can imagine these bodies as either a standing bodies, um, so judges sitting on those uh, on the multilateral investment court or on the appeal body in a standing way. They're, they're there, and, and disputes are brought to them. Or you could envisage a sort of roster model, what we call a roster model, or a semi-permanent body, and and that would mean uh, that. There are there are a number of individuals that are pre-elected or pre-selected on this roster, and then disputing parties can uh, pick certain individuals for a specific dispute. This would be some some sort of midway um, from what we have now uh, to a more radical uh, standing body. So there's there's actually several constellations that states can can draw from. Both of those scenarios, though, at least to me, 
and the scenario is being uh, either a, a more of a permanent court-like structure or a roster model, uh, lift the question as to how will they be appointed and by whom, right? Which you also look at because that's uh, that's a, a tricky. It is. Uh, it subject. is. It is. It is. It is probably one of the crucial issues uh, that will have to be discussed. Uh, both in terms of policy and in terms of uh, legal issues that arise. Another issue that, that is crucial is also the enforcement of the, of the arbitral award or the, the, the decision that will uh, come out from these uh, new adjudicatory bodies. But as it come, when it comes to composition, this is really a, a crucial issue on which uh, many states and stakeholders uh, strongly feel about. Um, because in the end, the, the the quality of the justice depends on the on the people that make uh, that make the decisions, and so uh, and of course, how do you select good people? Uh, how do you make sure to select good people? The the methods to to elect and select the judges is absolutely crucial, not just objectively, but also subjectively, because, of course, uh, we know that many issues that are currently being discussed are also perception issues, and uh, and they are uh, by no means secondary, because uh, justice must not only be done, but must, only be, must, must also be seen to be done. And so the perception on how these judges will be appointed is also crucial. Yeah, and you do a pretty good job at looking comparatively at the at, uh Various bodies, I have to say, some some that I didn't even know existed. <laughs> not just the the big ones in terms of the European Court of Human Rights and the ICJ and so on and so forth. But you you make I think a pretty convincing case for for diversity in terms of of the the people who are to be appointed in right. in this uh, scenario. Almost would it be fair to say that you were, you were arguing or or stating that diversity in and of itself. Is a, is a crucial aspect of the legitimacy of, of such a body. Absolutely, and and this is something that we really see as a problem in the existing framework. There's almost uh, no diversity, or very little diversity, and diversity can have many many facets. Uh, you know, normally we speak about gender diversity. Uh, there's of course the issue of, of regional geographic diversity. There's others other types of diversity that are also important that no one speaks about. These people with disabilities, sexual orientation. There's all types of diversity that I think is important. Important to, uh, to to at least think about in the in the debate, and when it comes to to ISDS specifically, we know that the pool right now is very is very narrow. Uh, it's it's a bit ironic because there is a bit of a disconnect between the, the theory and the practice. In theory, the pool is the, is the biggest possible. Parties have almost no restrictions in appointing their arbitrators right now, and yet we know that uh, the choice in practice is very always always um, in the end ends up on this on the, yeah, on the very few names, few names right and so we, i think we, we, what we try to to look at is if it comes to a more structured um, way of appointing members or judges, i.e. To, when it comes to a multilateral investment core or an appeal body, I think it will be crucial to ensure diversity. Diversity is important not just because it brings different views on the decision-making bodies, which according to some already is, is, is a sufficient ground because to, 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 as a sufficient ju- justification because it improves the decision-making. But as you said before, it is crucial for the legitimacy of the system itself. And since legitimacy is uh, one of the crucial concerns that we are seeing now, um, to be able to say that the uh, 
the judges that decide on the uh, on, on certain crucial issues must be representative of of, uh, of those upon which they uh, on which they render justice. I think it's it's a very important factor, and 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 this is this both applies both applies to gender diversity, of course, uh, but also geographical diversity, which I think is extremely important. Yeah, and geographical diversity, I guess, depends to a very large extent on uh, what type of body we end up with, especially in the sense. Uh, or with respect to how many states eventually sign up to this because if it's an interesting time to be alive because we don't really know anything right now we will look back to this conversation we're having now in seven <laughs> to ten years and, and and smile probably but if if we end up with some sort of multilateral body with with significant buy-in from states yeah. say 50 to 100 member states yeah. signing up to this then it really becomes an issue because you cannot really probably have 50 to 100 judges absolutely one from each member state so to speak so you would have to make it a, a smaller group and absolutely then. yeah it's, you, you're absolutely right i mean st- this is one of the options that states will have to consider and, and again we, we consider both options they can either uh, choose a model whereby each state has one judge that is that, that's also possible in theory for example the european court of human rights uh, each has uh, has a number of judges and each state has the right to 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 have its judge on on the bench uh, the same is true for the European Court of Justice. And so it, those examples exist. Uh, interestingly, no such example exists for a global court. Global courts uh, normally are what we call uh, selective representation courts. And so, of course, uh, that will inevitably uh, raise the question on how you select 15 or 25 judges that must be representative of essentially the entire community yes, of states, then, or at least those that, that sign up to the court. Yeah, exactly. And that might also change which ones sign up and also right. how, how the reflections are viewed, as the recent ICJ election shows pretty clearly that the, the representation isn't always the same as it was a few decades Absolutely. ago. Absolutely. These, these, these kind of divisions or distribution of seats, etc., change over time. Um, but what is clear uh, that is that some rules have to be provided to ensure that uh, at least the main regional uh, areas of the world feel they have an, an equal representation on the on the body. Again, that's a, that's essential for the for the legitimacy. The strength of the report, as I said initially, I think, is that you take no position one way or the other, but rather do uh, a very good research job and and providing a piece to the puzzle that we're discussing now. Thank you. Which also, of course, forces me to ask you what about what's not in the report <laughs> to the extent that you're comfortable making any sort of, of uh, prognosis on what's going to happen without, of course, making normative. Right, right. Uh, well, um, let, let, me, let me say this. I think it's, it's going to be a very long process, a long process of, of discussion, uh, first of all. States, there are some, some states that are, I think, uh, have already made up their mind quite clearly that the existing system as they view it uh, doesn't work in, the, in in their view and so they they feel they they need to move on i think a number of european states are of this view um, probably canada um, as well those that have already um, for example agreed to new new models canada and you have already agreed to a standing body in the ceta as we know there's other states that I think are, are more skeptical and, and, and they have good reasons also to, to be cautious about any radical change. And so I think the reflection process will, will last for a little bit. Uh, and um, 
I don't know. It's very difficult to to make predictions, but I think there is there is a number of states that is uh, that looks it's very committed to um, moving on and to to moving on to a new system. So I think in a few years we will be we might be in a very different position than we are now. And regardless of what happens, you, you and Professor Kaufman Kohler will be available for consultations and <laughs> and expert advice during. Yes, absolutely. Or, if states or or, or Central, uh uh, would like to have more reports. We're always happy to, uh, to 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 provide them. But I think I think it's important that everyone engages in the in the discussion, and um, and this this applies to to all stakeholders. I think it's it's important that states uh, make their own researches, mm, try to understand what are the policy issues behind the choices that they can make. It is also very important that the existing arbitration community engages in a serious uh, discussion. Sometimes the the, the reaction is, and, and of course I I understand it. We are all part of of, the, of this community. Is to to be skeptical of any in innovation that that is envisaged because, of course, we are comfortable with the the system as we know it and and perhaps as we like it, etc. But I think yeah. everyone is in this in this climate uh, is is called upon to to make a contribution and to make a, a reflection. Uh, other types of stakeholders as well, the NGOs and also let me say the the, the business organizations. Of course, they I think are quite concerned perhaps um, on on the possible ways in which the system might um, might evolve um, I think we we also need to hear them to hear their voice they also need to to understand the, the critical issues that uh, that are out there and so I think there has to be a, a common a common discussion on these very important issues which is exactly what is happening now in <laughs> in Vienna but as you say, it, it would have been naive to come here to Vienna, and now it's it's Friday afternoon already, and to, to expect that anything would be solved today. Oh, absolutely, no. <laughs> so this is something we will be talking about for quite some time. Right. We, we, we might have other podcasts. Uh, exactly, that's what the... I was going to say. But but for now, I, I would uh, certainly recommend our listeners to read, especially, if I may say so, the first report because of its broader yeah. scope, if, if you're interested in that type of work. Right, the, the, first, the first report essentially sets, sets the scene and, and gives you an idea on all the possible issues that would arise in if you try to imagine standing bodies for the resolution of investment disputes, so it touches upon issues of enforcement, of type of review of, of first instance bodies, and also of composition, whereas the second one uh, touches upon more specifically on the issue of composition that we have just discussed. Where can these reports be found? They can be found either on the UNCITRAL uh, website uh, under the page of Working Group 3, which is the working group that is currently in charge of discussing the issues, these issues, or on the SIDS uh, website, uh, www.sids.ch. HTTP colon slash slash. And so, yeah. They're Great. publicly available. Yes, that's the, the whole point. And now they are also publicly available in audio form, <laughs> albeit relatively condensed. Thank you so much, uh, Michele. I think we'll have reasons to come back to you as this work progresses. Thank you, Joel. That sounds good. <laughs> Welcome back to the happy fun time topic. Hopefully we'll, we'll make light of this uh, somewhat aggressive uh, discussion. But basically, <laughs> what uh, Joel, let's say that you were invited to a conference. Two conferences were happening. Uh, one right here in Stockholm, super easy for you to get to. 
no cost whatsoever, and it would be on mediation. Or you had to fly to um, Kiev for a 2,000 euro out of your pocket conference on arbitration. Which one it's a binary choose? choice. I have to choose one or the other. Yes. Because I, yeah, because I mean, ideally, I would do neither. But okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, you, you're, you're, uh, you're smart, right? Yeah. Because you know what I'm gonna have, respond the, to this. I of mean, the I point of my question <laughs> is that, like, regardless of the topic or who's speaking, or we, and most of it's out of just ignorance of the topic. But we, there's just no interest in arbitration lawyers on the topic of mediation. Which is funny because it comes up in so many different arbitration clauses. It comes up in, as I said, treaties and institutional rules, yet we like give no mind to it, um, nor necessarily consult our client to even consider it. Um, <clears throat> so as we know, mediation is a, you know the process with a neutral third party, which is like the mediator, and they assist them in reaching a settlement based off the business interests, risk assessments, policy considerations. And they may even you know discuss the legal positions of the party as well, but that's not their primary focus is not, okay, let's apply to the facts to the law. Um, and you know, I was re- did you know there's a, a mediation, a Kluver mediation blog? Oh. Yeah, <laughs> see? <laughs> Sorry, it's I really there. should. <laughs> no, but it's, um, it's just funny that this, it is such a developed part of law. And I think the reason why that arbitration lawyers are, arbitration lawyers, I think, are becoming leaning towards the litigation side of life, which is, you know, a little bit more dinosaur. This is how we do things. This is how you're supposed to get to the truth, which happens in arbitration. That's why you have masses of evidence and why you have experts and witnesses, because you want to get to the truth. Whereas yeah. mediation kind of says, okay, everyone, let's sit at the table and talk about how we can work this forward. So some people make the decision, the division that mediation is forward thinking and arbitration is backward thinking um, and trying to find out what happened in the past. I think this is even the consensus within the arbitration community. Everyone agrees the mediation is good, but they would rather someone else did it. Definitely. Yeah. yeah. And I don't think that I've. I think there are some lawyers that do hop back and forth between mediation and arbitration. That's true. That's really a coalition of of the willing in terms of uh, people who, within the arbitration community who are really embracing mediation yeah. questions and working a lot as mediators as well. And I. I mean, a mediation I think could be one session, two sessions. So you're like one or two days, minimal prep. Probably you need to like kind of probably have a list of issues debated that you want to talk about um in your case but then other than that you're just sitting at the it's, table it's such a skill though i'm not saying arbitration and being an arbitrator is not a skill but mediation is really in some ways you're almost akin to a therapist or you know you're working in some sort of <laughs> that's the derogatory language of arbitration lawyers <laughs> <laughs> i mean so i realize it's law and it's based on legal consideration but it's also you're way more involved in the psychology of the people in the room and you Definitely. have to 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 know things that I don't think most arbitration people typically know. I took a class actually. I don't know. You probably don't know this. When I was studying in Hamburg for my Erasmus, I took a class in international business mediation, which was now that I come to think of it, it was like the most interesting thing I did ever in law school. There was for a while that I wanted oh. to be a mediator rather than work in arbitration. What happened to that? What happened? You forgot. <laughs> Because then the uh, one of the like examining 
aspects when we had to to show our knowledge we towards the end of the course we actually had like a live mediation some sort of big business dispute over some construction i can't recall the facts but it was so interesting and we had all these skills and we of course had had very hands-on lectures from from practice as well and and i i just loved it because it's so more i don't know it's more human yeah. Arbitration. Yeah. And you sit in arbitration sometimes. And, you know, when you have, especially, let's say, an investment arbitration where the time between submissions is six months to a year, and you are, you're waiting for this one submission, then it comes, and then they've totally manipulated what you're trying to say. And, uh, you know, usually um, intentionally. But or they miss the point or they're not picking up on the point that's really at the heart of the issue. And you're sitting like, if we were just across the table from each other and we could just talk this out, I know that there wouldn't be this much miscommunication between the parties. It would be a little bit more evident what the issues are and how we need to come to a solution. Um, but yeah, you kind of get worked up in these like tools of arbitration and these like procedures in arbitration that it doesn't allow you that flexibility. Yeah, exactly. And there's a lot of research supporting what you just said as well, that, of course, uh, uh, a consensual outcome that has been mediated to the extent that it's even possible, that's not always the case. It's it's better, in a, irrespective almost of uh, how you define better, mediation is better than arbitration. Right. Um, so why, why do we badmouth or uh, maybe ignore is the better phrase, the world of mediation so much? I mean, we to be arbitration like... Lawyers. To be brutal, brutally honest, it's almost because we don't know how to how it works, and we don't know how to do it, and that's not our job. And so we try to cultivate business, and that's not in our business sector. I don't know. I mean, yeah. I mean, this is head on. I'm starting to realize now that we talk about this how little I actually know about mediation as well. Because there's a it's a big in my or our subfield of investment arbitration. There's a lot of discussion about mediation as a way to you know address some sort of the some of the legitimacy concerns with respect to investment arbitration yeah a lot of people talking about it even states discussing it although i guess the big thing is that you cannot mediate in public it's very hard to have a transparent mediation so it would almost um, by necessity be a confidential proceeding because otherwise it's it's hard to get yeah. the parties to the table and Definitely. talk in a frank way and that is of course I would imagine problematic to many states who are concerned with how confidential arbitration is because mediation is like one step further away on that spectrum between confidentiality and transparency. Yeah. And I mean, speaking of states, you're right. You flagged this in the first segment that the UNCTRAL is kind of taking steps um, to incorporate. I mean, they have their mediation rules, but they're kind of, you know, being at the forefront of the reform that needs to happen. And, you know, there there's the IBA investor state mediation rules, ICSID has their own mediation rules, they have mediation training courses, um, you have the energy charter treaty, well, the energy charter conference that, you know, established the energy charter treaty, they mm -hmm. have adopted a guide on investment mediation. That's right. So there's so much that's out there and available for the parties. And you know, with us in the SEC, we I actually wrote a guide um, to mediation at the SEC. And so I kind of had to write the practical steps that you take to do a mediation. And it's very similar. It's just the fact that you're appointing a mediator that doesn't necessarily give a binding decision, but it could come to a settlement agreement. Um, and that's another reason why I think parties are resistant to mediation, because they see it A, as futile, or B, as unenforceable. Yeah. Um, 
but Which if you're not strictly true, I mean, it's not enforceable, of course, in the in the sense that awards are under the New York Convention of the Exit Convention, but it's still it's a contractual agreement. But I, yeah, you would have to sue on it, I guess. Exactly. If you wanted to enforce it, a breach of the. But I mean, if we're talking about enforcement, especially in the investment context, like, I mean, it's not the easiest thing to do. No, it's not a golden bullet that just opens up all the courts of the world and gives you access to to uh, assets globally still <laughs> in practice. So. Here's here's our troves of treasure. No, it never happens like that. So if you, I don't really think enforcement is that valid of a of a discussion on why arbit like mediation shouldn't be as prevalent. Um, but then there's I I think and I think it could come up in different ways. A lot of people see it as what do they call the elevator clauses, where it's like you mediate and or the cooling off period. You meet you should try to reach an amicable settlement and then go into arbitration. But there's also discussions on whether in the institutional rules or the arbitration acts of the specific jurisdiction, whether the arbitral tribunal has the duty or power. So not necessarily the duty, but the power to stay arbitration for you know a opportunity to mediate um hmm. and that's and that's going to depend obviously on the jurisdiction in which you sit but um it's also going to depend very much on the arbitrators and given what we just say said i don't know how many arbitrators would even be able to identify and agree with the proposition that this is better dealt with in mediation than definitely. in arbitration of course there are people out there who would but most people i can I can just envision sort of a skepticism, like why why would we halt this proceeding, which is arbitration, which is the, the most efficient and enforceable thing, right? Uh, and instead send the party somewhere else. I think there's a, a significant dose of skepticism towards that in yeah. practice. Yeah, but yeah, but I don't think it's necessarily in the interest of the parties. Um, no, so, of course. And that's the problem, and that's the. The real issue here is that you have different you have the people that are working in it as a business deciding when to use it and when they consult you know it's like going into a doctor's office and they're like oh how do you feel okay and then you look at the doctor and you're like tell me whatever i need to do to get rid of this i trust you um and that's what happens with lawyers and if you don't have mediation in your repertoire the client's never going to think about it or think it's even a viable option have you been involved in any kind of mediation scenario no I helped the Stockholm University ICC moot in mediation. I helped the Stockholm team, but uh, other than that, oh, see that I f- I forgot about that as well. There's a moot yeah. for for mediation. There is at the ICC, and uh, what else have I? I took one class and you know other. It was like alternative dispute resolution, but not arbitration. Like even more alternative than that. Yeah, I think in the, I was thinking about this now here in Vienna that some states that were referring to alternative dispute resolution, and it's not really clear because I think under the the dogmatic old definition, arbitration is under that umbrella. Right. It, it covers everything that's not court litigation basically, but it seems now that arbitration is is big and established enough to have its own umbrella and. The other alternative dispute resolution methods are like conciliation, mediation, and what have you. Well, I mean, did they? Are you at liberty before this report comes out? If our podcast is broadcasted before the report, uh, what did they say about mediation? Or was it just like bringing up the possibility of? Yeah, this this I can speak freely about because it was in the commission report. Okay. Uh, so the commission that that sets the the agenda for the working group, they in in New York last time around six months ago. 
they actually set it down as a as a topic for discussion. So that's already a matter of public records, and since quite some time that the working group will consider or will debate whether or not other uh, forms of dispute resolution might be helpful in reforming ISDS. So it's on the table, uh, but so far not much has been said. Now it's more like okay. What, what are the experiences of states and what are the views of states when it comes to using these tools in ISDS? Right. There was actually a um, EU consultation. I don't know what that, the, the effect, a consultation document that was submitted by the, the EC um, on the prevention and amicable resolution of disputes between investors and public authorities. And they mention mediation as kind of a alternative dispute resolution mechanism in the instance of intra-EU bilateral investment treaties because they're having they're taking you know such issue with this problem with intra-EU bits mm. um, that they that um, mediation could come in as, as an agent for supporting a more predictable stable and clear regulatory environment um, for yeah, investments yeah. okay so then it sounds like the EU at least has already, an official position. I I think they're just trying to figure out any way to get arbitration out the door, but that's just me. Just you and your conspiracy. Political podcast. <laughs> Barely. 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 Um, well, yeah, that's that's all I got on mediation because we don't know anything. Yeah, exactly. That's the bottom line. But I mean, also the bottom line could also be like we this is not desirable, and uh, we should all expand our toolbox, as you said. Yeah, and I think that it's just fun. makes you a better lawyer in general. Yeah, provided that you want to be a better lawyer. <laughs> Not just a status quo dinosaur, yeah. Yeah, I'm just fine. No worries. All right, what uh, what happens now? What happens now is that I go back from Vienna and then we record uh, probably back in our normal places again for the next episode, right? Yes, there's only... After, this is episode 15 and then we only have four more or five more until uh, until the end of season one. Yeah, uh, have we agreed on when we end season one? Because it sounds like there's a plan. Uh, according to the calendar, it'll be the end of the calendar year. Okay, so we keep publishing every Tuesday. Until episode 20. Okay, that's amazing. Yeah. Good Good that we decided this. Was I in the room? On the air. No, it, it was a unilateral decision. I just hope you okay. can make it. Great, I'm looking forward to this. I'm also looking forward to... Uh, we should do some sort of holiday special, because I, I want to talk about uh, gifts you because you you mocked me when i said i tend to give the i descent book to people when they <laughs> their birthday so I'm, I'm going to do a serious list of books that you can actually give as a christmas gift to to uh, your loved ones that's a great idea and for people with personalities i'll give a list of good wines <laughs> just kidding <laughs> All right. Uh, Merry Christmas and Happy Hanukkah to all of you. 